I think sometimes as members of the church are so, um, it's so deeply ingrained in us that we respect authority, that we sustain and uphold our leaders. And, um, and I think that is, that is a, a, a deep-rooted part of our faith. But sometimes I think we confuse that and translate that over to our politics as well, that our elected officials, maybe Republican elected officials, are people who we also have to sustain and uphold and support regardless of their frailties and their weaknesses. And I would say that there are two different systems. Yes, we should support our church leaders, the men and women who lead us in, in the church, um, and we should sustain them in spite of their frailties. And we should work to help to fill in the gaps of their frailties and their weaknesses to help them to succeed, because that is what we're asked to do. And that is not what's asked, asked of us in a political context. We are asked in a divinely, what we believe is the divinely inspired constitution, we are expected to challenge and question our elected officials and, uh, and vote against them if they disagree. And nothing says that because they belong to a political party, they should get deference and a free pass. Hey everybody, how you doing? Jeff Openshaw here. Welcome once again to another edition of This Week in Mormons. We hope you'll visit us at thisweekinmormons.com where you can read all of our latest news and coverage of uh, Latter-day Saint news and our columns and blogs and all those sorts of things and uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the usual channels. Um, and likewise, if you haven't subscribed to the show yet, and we know there are many of you who are kind of like lurkers in that regard, right? You listen, but you don't hit the subscribe button. Hit the subscribe button. It's a good thing. You'll be happier about it. It'll be great down the line. And if you enjoy your show this week, once again, please uh, consider joining our Patreon team, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash This Week in Mormons, where you can pledge like $2 a month, which you know how we are. It just helps us pay our server fees and all those sorts of things to keep the podcast going. We don't usually inundate you with ads or anything like that. So we would very much appreciate that. Very excited about our show this week. Um, for those of you who ever get tired of us talking politics sometimes on the show, I have two things to say. One, don't worry about it. This show is going to be very interesting and cool. And two, have I really spoken about it that much since November of last year? Let's let's be honest. I've cooled off quite a bit, everybody. We're in a, we're in a better place now. But uh, we are very, very happy to welcome to This Week in Mormons, uh, Congressman from Utah. I guess I don't want to say former at this point, but Congressman Ben McAdams has joined us on This Week in Mormons. Congressman, how are you doing? Great. I'm doing really well, Jeff. Great to be with you. Great to be with Devin, my friend Devin as well. Oh yeah, I forgot to introduce Devin. Sorry, Devin. Hi. Yeah, hi, hi, Devin. I, I, that's only appropriate that I am forgotten. Uh, I'm like background noise. You hope it. You hope it's not too distracting. <laughs> Uh, well, we are we are very happy to have you here. We've had we've interviewed different politicians in the past and everything, but I don't I believe this is our first time interviewing a uh, anyone who's actually been in Congress, uh, primarily because Devin just didn't go after John Curtis hard enough, and we would have had that chance right now. But uh, it's it's great to have you, and we're so excited to learn about your experiences, especially as a member of the church and uh, and everything you've done in politics. Now. Our list, some of our listeners might not know who you are. Obviously, Devin and I follow this stuff a bit more, I'd say, closely than a lot of folks. So who is Ben McAdams? Can you give us a rundown of, of who you are? Sure. I'll try and give you the, the condensed version. Oh, sure. But I uh, grew, grew up here in Utah. I uh, went to the University of Utah. And then my wife and I moved to New York City. We went to, to law school in New York. And uh, when we graduated, we both actually are attorneys. When we graduated from law school, we practiced law in in New York for a few years and then moved back home to Utah. Um, and we're here practicing law when I took my career. My wife says I never was offered a pay cut that I didn't take. <laughs> so I went to work for Salt Lake City in, uh, as an advisor to the mayor of Salt Lake City some 12, 13 years ago and uh, did that and then was elected to the state senate in 2009, was elected mayor of Salt Lake County in 2012. I did that for six years, and then I was elected to the United States Congress in 2018. Uh, had the distinction of being the only member of the church who's a Democrat serving in federal office, and uh, did that, and then um, was uh, not reelected in 2020. Was uh, in a very close race with Burgess Owens, who who won the race by just about one percent. Yeah, and so now I'm back into private life and. Got my first pay increase of twelve years, and <laughs> sleeping under the same roof with my with my kids and family, and and enjoying private life for the time being. Uh, 
At least you're doing so in Utah and you haven't just like packed your bags and run to K Street as fast as you can in, in DC <laughs> in terms of embracing the private yeah. life. So what like what what made you want to get into public office then? You're first, so you of course you advised the mayor of Salt Lake City for some time before you yourself before you joined the state senate primarily. So like what made you decide to run and actually get involved? and be a politician. Well, yeah, so there's a little bit of a story with that, if you don't mind. I guess we got the time I can, I can give some of this background. Yeah, but, go ahead. So I'm, um, I'm practicing law here in New York. We had just, we'd been back in Utah for about a year. And, uh, I, you know, if you're a Democrat in Utah, pretty, pretty good chances you know every other Democrat in Utah. Uh, so we, um, it's kind of like being a member of the church and, and a lawyer in New York. People uh-huh. would say, oh, I know another Mormon who's a lawyer. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I know him. And people would be blown away that I knew every Mormon lawyer in New York. But it's a, similar to being a Democrat in Utah. If you're a Democrat uh, in Utah, you probably know each other. So um, uh, Ralph Becker was elected mayor of Salt Lake City in, in 2007. And uh, um, I had known him I had, when I was in college at the University of Utah. I had interned at the Utah legislature and had worked with Ralph and, and stayed in touch with him over the years. And so when he was elected, he approached me and said that, um, he was. He said he was. Look, he said I'm looking for somebody. Well, for those who aren't in Utah, you probably um, those who are your listeners that are in Utah probably know that there's usually epic battle between Salt Lake City, that's a little bit more progressive, and the state of Utah, that's more conservative. And it seems like we're constantly having showdowns between the city and and the state of Utah. And spoiler alert: Salt Lake City always loses those showdowns. Uh, and so. Mayor Becker's pitch to me was, you know, he was coming off of uh, uh, eight years of Rocky Anderson, who had been mayor of Salt Lake City, very progressive mayor of Salt Lake City, and had been pretty divisive. And, and Ralph approached me and he said, look, I, um, I'm interested in, there's a lot of stuff that the city needs to get done. I want to have a good relationship with the state. And, uh, and um, but, I, you know, I, I am representing a progressive city. I'm going to have to be true to my constituents and true to his own values. But he said, but I want to have a good relationship with the state. So he said, I need somebody who can speak to the rest, to the legislature and really serve as a bridge between Salt Lake City and the state of Utah and, uh, and vice versa, who can translate what the state's saying back to Salt Lake City. And, uh, and he said, I'd love for you to come and be my director of government affairs and be this bridge between Salt Lake City and the state of Utah. And uh, it actually seemed like a, a really interesting opportunity, something where I could give back. You know, we, we're taught that where much is given, much is expected. I think living in Utah, we live in one of the best states in the country, uh, wonderful place to live. And I felt like this was an opportunity for me to give back to, to make it better, to, to be a bridge and to heal some of the divisions that existed in my state and the city that I love. And so um, that coupled with the fact that it was a pay cut, my wife says I'm drawn to pay cuts. Uh, I, I jumped at the chance and, and I said, yes, I'd love to do that. Immediately went to work for Salt Lake City, and there were two issues that were like right out of the gates that were pretty contentious. One of the the first two epic battles, the showdowns that were staged for the new mayor of Salt Lake. First was uh, building tracks out to the airport. Uh, There were many in our legislature who thought that was just going to be a waste of money, that nobody would want to ride transit to an airport. And and uh, you know, we lived in New York. Like, who would think that? Who would think? I mean, uh, I remember I remember tracks (laughs) itself was contentious in Utah in the first place before the Olympics. Yeah. And then it was a big success. And then, yeah, okay. Sorry, continue. I, I've, public transit. So they were wanting to ban ban money, ban spending money to build tracks to the airport. You know, I'd lived in New York and, and uh, spent some time as an intern in Washington, D.C. and knew how uh, really it seemed like grown-up cities have transit and, and especially connecting to the airport to transit. So that was the first issue. The other was even more complicated. And that was uh, Becker had campaigned on, if elected mayor of Salt Lake City, that that he would propose ordinances to protect against discrimination for LGBTQ residents of the city. That essentially, you can't be fired from your job or evicted from your home if you're gay. And uh, no sooner had he, uh, you know, he was elected and said that they would move, he was going to move forward with enacting these provisions. And uh, a very conservative member of the state Senate stepped forward and said, if Salt Lake City does these ordinances, I'm going to run legislation to overturn it. So this is uh, this is 2008. Uh, you know, we are um, it's it, it, right at the same time as Prop 8 in California that he's moving forward with this. Very, we see even though Prop 8 in California, we see this division in Utah, uh, 
dividing families, dividing, you know, uh, potentially uh, hurting our tourism industry and business industry. And we knew a lot of us came together and said, this can't happen. We can't allow our state to be front and center and to continue to tear us apart. So went to the mayor and said, uh, you know, we know that there, we're not, uh, we're not unfamiliar with epic battles between the city and the state. We always make a good stand and we lose and we, you know, die on a hill of principle. And I said, I think we need to take a different approach this time. I think we need to work out, uh, work out and, and get consensus around this. So I said, give me some time to go and meet with the state legislature and meet with various stakeholders and see if we can't get people to rally around uh, consensus. And so I um, started traveling the state, meeting with state legislators in their homes, meeting with them in their um, local pancake house and different places and talking to them about why Salt Lake City felt it was important to have protections against LGBTQ discrimination and why I, as a, an active member of the church, wanted this for my city. And, you know, I found people who, um, Republicans, uh, yeah, who agreed that, that this was a noble thing, that agree or disagree, uh, that somebody should have the ability to provide a roof over their head for their family and put food on the table. I uh, had others who said, look, I don't agree, but I, I think that Salt Lake City should have the ability to do what they want within the boundaries of their own city. And, uh, and it became a matter of fine tuning this, uh, these ordinances. And I sat with this, this state senator who was threatening to overturn it. I sat with him in his home for probably a total of about eight hours on, on three different occasions, working oh, through yeah. the, the language on this and figuring out what it was going to take, listening to his concerns, not always, not, a, not at all agreeing with some of the, the fears that he expressed, but allowing him to express those fears and then work through why I didn't think those fears would materialize and then fine tuning some of the language in it and that. And ultimately Salt Lake City adopted these ordinances. It was November of 2009. And when, he, when we adopted these ordinances, the, the city at the time had uh, four Democrats and three Republic, Republicans on the council. It received a unanimous vote of support from the city council. The first person to speak in support of these ordinances was a representative of the church. The second person to speak in support of the ordinances was a representative from Equality Utah. Both stood up and said that they support these ordinances and that they believe that it can bring good and healing to, uh, to our city. And so these ordinances passed. I was, my role was largely behind the scenes, but, but many people had seen me doing this work of diplomacy and hammering out agreement and bringing people together. It's where I got to know Jim DeBacchus, another uh, prominent voice in Utah politics. He was, he was helping to, to massage this and move this forward and build consensus around this as well. Um, and when these, these were adopted in November of 2009. So, um, in December of 2009, uh, we were living in the Avenues part of Salt Lake City at the time. Our state senator, who uh, his name was Scott McCoy, he was the first openly gay state senator uh, elected in Utah. Uh, the Avenues is a pretty progressive part of probably the most progressive part of Utah. Um, senator McCoy announced that he was uh, stepping down from the legislature because he was up for partner at his law firm and. Um, wanted to pursue, put his focus on his career, needed to put his focus on his career. So he announced he was stepping down and I announced that I was going to run for the Utah State Senate. Uh, people who know me know I'm a moderate. Uh, some people question whether a moderate could win in the avenues. Uh, but people had seen the work that I had done, uh, bringing people together and, and building this bridge and this dialogue and consensus around Salt Lake City's non-discrimination ordinances. So I say that, you know, I was uh, elected to the state Senate in, in December of 2009 in that special election to fill that vacancy. And I say that I was the first openly Mormon person elected to the state Senate uh, to represent that district really in my lifetime. Temple Square has not seen, has not had a state senator representing Temple Square, a member of the church representing Temple Square in my lifetime until I was elected in 2009. So uh, that's kind of what took me from law to public service to elected office in the state Senate. And from there, you know, I continued to work on, on the non-discrimination ordinances and, and carried that legislation to take it statewide every year, making a little bit of progress until, um, you know, to jump ahead in the story for those who followed it. But it was in 2014, I, w I had gone on and been elected mayor of Salt Lake County, but it still stayed in the loop on these ordinances and working to advance them. But it was in 2014 that we had uh, several members of the Quorum of the Twelve 
held a press conference to announce that they were uh, that the church was behind and supporting a statewide adoption of non-discrimination protections. And I think we really saw um, Utah move forward in a way and separate ourselves from many of our peer states that were mired in, in divisiveness and discrimination. And we had actually moved forward with consensus and bridge building. And, um, you know, and that has become, I think, a hallmark of my public service is recognizing that you can learn something by listening to people with a different opinion, even if you don't agree. And, uh, and that consensus building and, um, and problem solving is much more satisfying than division and finger pointing. And, uh, you know, gone on to work on other topics like homelessness or, um, addiction recovery, uh, additional transportation things. And, and, you know, but I would say the hallmark of my public service has been, uh, standing on the side of, of understanding and bringing people together to solve problems rather than, than divide us. Hey, ben, as we think about uh, the, the the rest of our discussion tonight, I, I I wonder if I could ask another framing question. But during my failed campaign, I I made about thirty thousand phone calls, uh, fundraising calls, and about two percent of those calls, roughly, were to people who had run for Congress were serving in Congress or had served in Congress. Now, I didn't often connect with those who were in Congress, but I remember one conversation with someone who had served and he he really kind of stopped me in my tracks, just, you know, like slow your roll there, big guy. And uh, he said, Devin, I want you to think about what an extraordinary thing it is. Let me just tell you what an extraordinary privilege it is to serve in the House of Representatives. And he went on to explain what really, truly, in in reverent, almost sacred terms, what that experience had meant to him. I I wonder if, as we think about the the rest of our discussion tonight, if you would just frame that by reflecting on your experience and what it meant to you to actually serve in the people's house. Um, Yeah. So it was, I, I would have to agree that serving as a representative of the United States Congress is, is an incredible privilege. Uh, sometimes for me, there was a little bit of irony in that. As you, you know, you, they tell this, this is the joke that you hear when you first come into Congress. So I'm going to, I'm going to use it since you probably haven't heard it, but it's kind of cliche in the halls of, of Congress. But they say you arrive in Congress and you walk into that house chamber for the first time and you look around and, and you feel the weight of history on your shoulders. This is, it, this place is, um, is a place where the great individuals of history walked these halls and, and gave incredible speeches. You know, right there at the, at that dais is where Franklin Delano Roosevelt talked about the day that will live in infamy that, uh, you know, and you think about, um, Abraham Lincoln had a, uh, a, a desk in this building when he served in the House of Representatives. And you think, you just feel this weight of history on your shoulders. And you think, I can't believe I'm here. And then, you know, six months goes by and you've gotten into the work of it. You're serving, you've rolled up your sleeves, you're on your committee and everything. And you walk into that chamber again and you look at your colleague and you think, uh, and you, you, you know, you've just been debating with them on a, a piece of legislation and you realize um, how misguided they are, and you, you start, learned a little bit about your colleagues, and you walk into the floor that day, and you look around, and you think, you can't believe they're here. So, <laughs> you know, can't believe I'm here, so then I can't believe they're here. Um, yeah. But I, I tell that joke is, first of all, you do feel the uh, enormity, the uh, immense weight of history that's on your shoulders, the legacy that uh, that has bequeathed us this the world's first democracy and the amazing things that this country has accomplished of, of lifting people into prosperity and a middle class and, and, uh, uh, curing diseases and, and, um, putting, you know, humans on the moon and all the incredible things that, that I think our system of government has yielded. And you feel the weight of that. But you also look around and you think, um, of the enormous and incredible things that we've done. Are we living up to that stature today? And you look around and you see the divisiveness and the the pettiness and the uh, small-minded things that divide us, uh, and the fear that is um, is extolled from the halls of of Congress, meant to 
to drive people into their corners and to um, and to garner pol- for political gain the the fear and the the misinformation that comes out of there. This was the place that you know a few days after my term in Congress ended, where we had a violent insurrection where people died because of lies and misinformation that was perpetrated by the President of the United States and his supporters. And and uh, and I don't mean to just single out. Um, uh, the you know, what happened on the insurrection because I think there are people on both sides of the aisle who who use fear or misinformation or dogma to divide for political gain and and I, I guess the irony of it is yes Devin you're right it is an incredibly incredible honor to serve in the People's House in the United States Congress and yet I don't always feel like we live up to the the honor that um, is bestowed on us. And, uh, Interesting. and, you know, I mean, and the House is kind of known for being a bit more uh, rambunctious than, say, the Senate, at least historically. But we all see how it's reported in the news, how we portray the fights between the sides in the House. Is it is it really, in your experience, is it really that bad and that divisive now? I mean, and most because most report that it's worse than it's been in, in generations. Did you really see that on the ground, that it really was what we're seeing ourselves as lay citizens? Yeah, I think I would say yes and no. Uh, it is um, it is as bad as we see, right? I mean, I don't think I was at home here in Utah, but watching um, live stream of the insurrection, and I was calling my colleagues who I had been working with for the last two years. And these are coworkers that I I know, I know their families and their kids, and and worried about them and worried about their safety. And I think we saw that, and you you can't see that and think, um, you know. It's, you have to realize it is really bad. But I would also say that while it is every bit as bad, sometimes even worse than we might think, there are other things that give me hope, other areas where I would say it's better than you might think. So I'm, uh, one of the first things I did when I was elected was I joined a, a group of members of Congress uh, called the Problem Solvers Caucus. This is a group, in order to join, you have to have somebody from the other party, you have to join, say, Noah's Ark style, two by two. And, uh, and they keep the numbers even, equal number of Republicans and Democrats. And we got together, um, you know, at least on a weekly basis, but it ended up being much more often than that. To talk about legislation, we'd have an agenda, we'd bring forward uh, items of legislation where we felt like we could bridge the divide, where we could um, break through some of the gridlock and get stuff done on things like um, surprise medical billing or immigration uh, some of the immigration funding for some of the crisis at the border that we had some success on. And that group, you know, through that group, I built some pretty strong relationships with, with Republican colleagues. And, and like the experience that I had working on non-discrimination uh, in the Utah State Senate, I found that when you sat down and you listened to somebody with a different opinion, you could oftentimes find common ground and realize that we weren't as far apart as, as it seemed. And, uh, and that organization gave me a lot of hope for the future and, and, understanding of what it would take to fix what's broken in Washington. And I don't think um, members of the public necessarily see that. The, uh, uh, you know, what, what you're going to see on cable news, on the infotainment uh, channels, you're going to see controversy. Controversy is what keeps eyeballs on the screen and people paying attention and working out uh, consensus on a complicated issue of public policy, no matter how important it is just isn't newsworthy, unfortunately, these days. So what you see is maybe an elevation. It's reality for sure. I wouldn't say that it necessarily doesn't, it does exist, but, um, but it's not the whole picture. There is, there is, uh, there are good people on both sides of the aisle who are doing good things to, to try to address some of our toughest challenges. And you really want to push, you know, you've prided yourself, I think, on working towards consensus on issues and you describe yourself as a moderate. There are many right now, at least in our, our current era, with a 50-50 split Senate. Um, a ha- the House, I think, is only, what, up six seats for Democrats at this point. It's pretty narrow. There are many who are who would argue consensus hasn't worked anymore. Like, we've tried to reach out. It's time to essentially... I'm not going to say burn it all down, but it's time to just say, forget it. Let's pass stuff. Let's push on. Who cares about consensus? Because the other side isn't going to cooperate. We've tried that already. And I think a lot of people have echoes of 2009, for example, uh, when the Affordable Care Act was going through and and other other parts of history. I mean, what do you say to that, especially as a moderate and someone who, who likes consensus? Do you think there are merits to the idea that you should just forget it so you can actually r- try to ram through legislation that matters, especially for the party? Or do you feel differently? 
I think we should never give up on trying to work together and to, and to build consensus. I think I'm a believer having, having been engaged in multiple instances where we do build consensus and we found and achieved common ground that, that in reality, the, you know, some people say that, you know, consensus or compromise is a swear word and compromise. What you're doing is watering down. You have the perfect solution for every problem. And if you have to compromise your substandard, your subpar, and why would you do that? Especially if you've got if one party or the other, and we've seen in, in the last decade, both parties, Republicans controlled the presidency in the House and the Senate and pushed through legislation. And now Democrats control the House and the Senate and the presidency, and, and they're pushing through legislation. I'm, I'm a believer that compromise is not a swear word, that it doesn't dilute what's good, good. It doesn't dilute good public policy, but I've seen it actually make good public policy better. When you sit down and you talk to somebody who has a completely different view than you do, and um, they're seeing around corners that I can't see. They have a perspective that I can't see because of my life circumstances and where I sit, perspectives and, and, and opportunities I've had in my life. I may not see things as they're seeing it, but if I listen to them, they may be seeing deficiencies that I'm blind to. And I'm seeing deficiencies that they're blind to. And if we can sit down and have honest, uh, be honest brokers and, and sincerely negotiate to try and get common ground, um, the ultimate outcome is better for that, not worse, not diluted. Now, I, you have to recognize that not everybody is an honest broker and uh, sincerely negotiating. But, I, you know, I would always say when I, you know, was in, in elected office that you work you, you work with whoever is willing to have a seat at the table uh, and you can never, you never stop listening and you never stop trying to build your coalitions and make them bigger. Said like a Democrat in Utah, right? I mean, you can't really be picky <laughs> when you're, when you're a Democrat from Utah. That's right. Ben, you know, you, you have a unique, well, you mentioned you're the only Latter-day Saint in Congress when you were there. How did you feel treated as a member of the church in Washington? and in the party? Well, the party was great. You know, one thing that I think I wish more people understood is that um, I'm the only member of the church in the Democratic caucus. My colleagues in the Democratic caucus were many, many of them were people of deep faith and deep commitment and, uh, and um, would frequently reference their faith. Uh, and, you know, now I think the perception is that Democrats are godless heathens. Uh, but, and, and, you know, there are people of no faith who I served with and, and I think they were people of deep ethics, even if they were not of, of faith, but, but many of my colleagues were people of deep, deep faith and deep religiosity. And, and they were intrigued at my faith, at my expression of faith and what made me tick. And they wanted to understand that better. And, and I felt very much respected by my democratic colleagues and, um, a little bit of an oddity, right? Cause they didn't know many members of the church who were, who were uh, Democrats, but um, but that was something that was interesting to them that they wanted to understand better. Um, and you know, uh, colleagues on the Republican side also they they have a, a weekly prayer breakfast that is, is bipartisan that um, people come together from both parties to uh, you know it's it's an unofficial so it's not you know part of the official duties but people get together to to express their faith together and I think it, it was inspiring to me to see that and that there is that level of of respect and and willingness to, to work together and to come together and that our differences are, are um, something that uh, we were respected for and, um, and was interesting. People, like I said, wanted to learn more. I didn't, uh, not that they wanted me to send the missionaries to their house, but, uh, but they, did, they did have interest in, in my perspective. But did you do the right thing and keep pass along cards in your, in your coat right. while you're on the floor, for example? Yeah. Um, so we're talking about how kind of how you feel, uh, how, how you've been treated as a Latter-day Saint in Washington. On the flip, how do you feel treated as a Democrat in what is a highly Republican church? I mean, I, I think, and I think there's a lot of this we can discuss, but, um, you know, comp you said compromise is not a four-letter word. There are many in our faith that think Democrat is effectively a four-letter word. I mean, how has that been for you, even as a moderate Democrat, but what sort of battles have you faced and what has that been like for you during your career? Well, you know, I, I always say that I'm um, my uh, my faith is is a deep part of who I am, and it motivates 
many of my positions, whether it's my positions on immigration reform or my work around homelessness or creating opportunities, educational opportunities for people, all of those are, are rooted in, in a faith. And, and I would say my faith, uh, my worldview that's informed and, and really my faith is the foundation of my worldview informs how I go out and, and act in the, in the broader world. And so I, I've never felt a need to apologize for that. We live in an incredible ward. I actually, um, after I lost my congressional race in November, um, I was called to the bishopric in our, in our local ward. So, um, you know, I, I have to, I was, it's kind of funny. I was, uh, you know, after 12 years of public service and it's really demanding and emotionally exhausting and time consuming. And, uh, I remember saying to my wife, I am just looking forward to, to a, a rest, to taking a break and, and, uh, having a little bit more of a private life and just more downtime. And, <laughs> and then, uh, and then the call came to serve in the bishopric and, uh, you know, famous last words looking for, um, for uh, a break from volunteerism and from service. But, you know, I, I felt that uh, it was important to keep serving in a different capacity and that service matters. And, uh, but I would say, you know, I think certainly I, I, I find people who, who question my ability to be a Democrat and a member of the church and uh, mostly people who don't know me, some pretty horrific things that people will say or message me through social media um, and, and threats that, that came at me, um, because of my status as a, a active member of the church and a, an elected democratic official that some pretty awful things that people would say and do. But, um, you know, we live in a great ward, uh, a great stake where people are very supportive. I think I would say our ward and stake are still conservative. Members of the church are, are largely Republican, mm -hmm. but people who, who love us and love our family and, and politics isn't, the basis upon which they're going to judge whether we are good neighbors and, and, uh, and good, you know, people to associate with. You know, Ben, there's, there are this, this group of people in the church who really believe, I think that you can't be a good Mormon and a Democrat. Uh, and so let me, ask you do your do your religious views consistent with the gospel inform your political views as a democrat and if so how yeah so um you know i, I think we have to look no further than elder oaks's talk in the most recent general conference where he would say and i would agree with him that neither political party um reflects wholeheartedly my religious views or the the doctrinal positions with the church. Neither party is in alignment, and uh, and we are expected not to hand over our thinking and our thought process to um, of a political party. But we should, you know, I think I think sometimes we we as members of the church are so um, it's so deeply ingrained in us that we respect authority, that we sustain and uphold our leaders, and um, and I think that is that is a a, a deep-rooted part of our faith. But sometimes I think we confuse that and translate that over to our politics as well, that our elected officials, maybe Republican elected officials, are people who we also have to sustain and uphold and support regardless of their frailties and their weaknesses. And I would say that there are two different systems. Yes, we should support our church leaders, the men and women who lead us in, in the church, um, and we should sustain them in spite of their frailties. And we should work to help to fill in the gaps of their frailties and their weaknesses to help them to succeed, because that is what we're asked to do. And that is not what's asked, asked of us in a political context. We are asked in a divinely, what we believe is the divinely inspired constitution, we are expected to challenge and question our elected officials and, uh, and vote against them if they disagree. And nothing says that because they belong to a political party, they should get deference and a free pass. And so, um, you know, I think that is maybe an, an area where we can do better that, um, you know, that, um, neither political party does a perfect job of upholding my personal views or I would say the views of the church. And, uh, and we need to look for those people, those individuals who, uh, maybe best align with our perspectives and our thoughts or those who we believe have the integrity and ethics to serve honorably. And, and that's what's expected of us, not to 
not to give deference and, and a sustaining vote and and uh, to someone no matter what. You kind of hinted at something there that I think is very interesting because you you ran against a fellow Latter-day Saint in 2018, an unseated Mia Love, and then Burgess Owens is also a Latter-day Saint and unseated you. And I'm just curious about that dynamic in that sense. I mean, I think you, you you laid the groundwork there a bit. Like, is it, what's that dynamic like when you're running against someone of your own faith, given how we are as Latter-day Saints and trying to, you know, support and love one another and everything, but politics is politics. I mean, like, what is that like? Is that in any way awkward because you are both people sharing a united goal and coming into Christ? And then, and like you said, there's two lanes, but then there's this other area where you, it's, it's free to critique one another and try to explain why you're a better, a better choice, for example. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, first of all, um, there are, we can have differences of opinions and, and, you know, my, my views align, I, I believe wholeheartedly align with my, my, uh, my church and my belief in, in God and the gospel of Jesus Christ aligns wholeheartedly with my political beliefs. And, uh, and like I said, not, I don't, my political beliefs don't line, align 100% with my political party, nor do I believe that the Republican Party, uh, there are areas where I agree with the Republican Party. What I think sometimes is unfortunate is when faith is used as a weapon to, to discredit or marginalize someone in a race. Uh, you know, I believe in my work on non-discrimination, the heart of finding consensus and compromise is to recognize that somebody has a, who has a different opinion than you have is, is they're grounded in good values and a desire to do good. And they just come out, out at a different conclusion than, uh, than you might. And um, my experience hasn't always been that that's what happens, especially in some of these hotly contested political races. It was really disappointing to me in the last race to see, you know, um, the uh, the awful ad you're lucky um you're lucky that you didn't live in utah to have to experience some of these nonstop ads and some of them were on uh on the side supporting me and and others um opposing me but just allegations that i'm a a marxist who wants to you know godless marxist who wants to destroy america and you know it's really some pretty absurd uh allegations if, especially if you know me and know my values and my family values and um you know, it is kind of disappointing when you see faith used as a weapon. I, I would hope that I, um, I, I, I don't, I, that I never did that. And those who support me would never use faith as a weapon, but recognize that people can have sincerely held religious beliefs and come to different conclusions about matters of public policy. The church doesn't really engage in, in specifically in public policy matters. And we're free to, you know, as Joseph Smith said, teach them correct principles and let them govern themselves. Uh, you can apply different principles to uh, come out with different policy conclusions and and be well grounded in in good ethics and good values and come to different conclusions. And I would always try to respect that my colleagues on the other side are are grounded in good solid values and trying to do the right thing, even though we may vehemently disagree about the strategies to accomplish that. You know, Ben, as a follow up to that, what what do you think you've learned? from watching and for, well, from being in these last couple of races against. So I, I'm fo- I want to focus for a minute on the politics of race and gender, where you, you ran against African-Americans, which is kind of an unusual thing to have had two races against African-Americans in Utah, and one of whom was a, a woman. W- what do you learn about race and gender and politics in Utah and in the church? You know, I believe deeply that a democracy, one of the things that makes democracy resilient and strong is that, you know, when, when our country was founded, uh, in, um, in our early days, we were founded upon the principle. We, we really, the innovation of American democracy was there's a better way to solve our differences. And we're going to solve our differences, not through violence and power, but we're going to solve our differences through legislation, through debate, through consensus building. And that if we can do that, not only do we avoid the, you know, the enormous societal cost that comes with violence and, and bloodshed, but uh, the process that I described where out, uh, through the, the free market of ideas and competition of ideas and negotiation and dialogue, that we actually have advancements and innovations in public policy that, that allow to that create an environment for um, for the prosperity that we've seen that this country has created, the global prosperity really that has come through this model 
of governance. And so I believe that that model is best when you do have people from different backgrounds, different perspectives, different genders, different ethnicities, um, that that is what makes a democracy strong. And, um, you know, and all things being equal, I think the, the more diversity we have in a legislative body, the more resilient and stronger that legislative body. But at the end of the day, elections are about a vision for the future and, uh, and a direction that we want to see. And, and that's what the founding fathers had said is that at, at the time where we settle differences, pretty soon, there's some pretty significant differences that were litigated in, in those elections that we, that, you know, in 2018 and 2020, uh, that's where we settled that. And so that race for me was not about ethnicity or gender. It was about policy. And I'll give you some, one of the, some of the, a couple of the policies that I felt most strongly about. First being healthcare. And, and it's one that is, again, founded in, in my deep religious faith. And that is that nobody should be denied healthcare because of a pre-existing condition. That, um, that healthcare should be accessible and affordable to everyone. That, 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 that access to quality healthcare is foundational to our pursuits. Uh, our eternal pursuits and our pursuits of prosperity and, and stability and family life in, in this life and, and, and pretty fundamental to our, our pursuits of e- eternal progression as well. And so, um, there is a debate around the Affordable Care Act and whether that should be repealed entirely. I, I, I never said that the Affordable Care Act is perfect, but it expanded healthcare to thousands of people who had never had it before. And we needed to protect that. And, and fix what wasn't working with the Affordable Care Act, but particularly protect people who had pre-existing conditions who were previously denied health care, but granted it under the Affordable Care Act and did not want to go back to a place where people were being denied access to health care because of a pre-existing condition. And my opponent in 2018 had voted numerously to repeal those protections that I think would have put a lot of people in jeopardy. And, um, you know, and I, I think there are, there are values that we can understand about why she was motivated in voting the way that she did, and it was a and I had a difference of opinion. Um, in in uh, 2020, it was similar uh, a debate around access to healthcare. Um, it, both in 2018 and 2020, another one that was important to me was Dreamers. These are kids who had come to the United States uh, through no decision of their own, younger than you know what we call the age of accountability. They had not, they weren't accountable for that decision that landed them in the United States, but they were undocumented because they came as a young child. And uh, we had the Dream and Promise Act that would uh, create a pathway to citizenship for these kids who the only country they knew was the United States. They were in many cases born, they weren't born here, but they were raised here. English was the only language that many of them knew. They had graduated from Utah high schools, had graduated from American colleges and wanted a career to give back and to provide for themselves and their families. And, and we had a policy um, that, that both of my opponents in 2018 and 2020 were denying them access to a pathway to citizenship that would divide their families, deny them work and the ability to provide for themselves and send them back to a country that they never knew. And I think that was, you know, that was something that I felt strongly about, that we should, um, and I'm the only representative from Utah to have voted in support of the Dream and Promise Act, which was brought up in 2018 and again in 2020. And the only per- the only representative from Utah to have voted in support of that. That is a policy, by the way, that the church has come out in support of. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so that's what, for me, the election, certainly um, a legislative body should have uh, a diversity of backgrounds and opinions to be resilient and strong. But at the end of the day, um, we also have to look at the policies that our representatives are putting forward and ask ourselves whether they re- reflect the direction that we think our state and our country should go in. There's one area I think being a Democrat and being a Latter-day Saint can be difficult. And so, in some ways, I think Elder Oaks, in my mind, was alluding to this, but I think Elder Oaks' talk was kind of a Rorschach test for many of us in different ways and what we saw from it. Um, but what is your view on abortion? Because that's the one I think a lot of people run to um, from from Republicans in the church. You know, it's, that's the first thing people jump on. People said they couldn't vote for Joe Biden because he he supports abortion, which is diff- which is different from being pro choice in many ways. Right? Depends on the words you use. But w- what is your view um, on abortion, and how have you reconciled that? Uh, particularly in a party, because the Democratic Party, even under like Tom Perez, was flirting pretty seriously with making that essentially um, a requirement to get party support to run for office. Yeah. 
Well, I'm pro-life, and uh, and uh, it's a position that I, you know, was very clear about, and and uh, was conditional uh, upon my even running, and, and people understood that, and and for me, it was not a requirement. Uh, people knew my values and my position on that, but you know, my position on that was was the same as the position of the church, and that is that um, I don't support abortion except in the cases of rape, incest, or where the mother's life is in danger, and in those cases. You know, I, I still don't know if that were a decision that, that my wife had to make. Don't know what, and we've talked about this. I don't know what decision she would make uh, under those circumstances. But we both feel very strongly that in those rare circumstances, that should be her decision and not the government's decision. And that's uh, a decision that she would make after consulting with family, with, you know, her husband, with uh, faith leaders and a doctor and people she trusts. And she'd, she'd make that decision. And that, that essentially is the position of the church, and, and that's my position as well. But I would say, you know, and if you look at um, what Elder Oaks was saying is, again, no party has a monopoly on, on right, the right ideas. Um, and and we, these are decisions that we need to make individually based on our own research and, and understanding. Um, I would look at, you know, what party, what policies parties are putting forward as it relates to caring for kids. For, you know, I, I, as someone who does not support elective abortion, uh, what are we doing to reduce the numbers of abortion? Um, you know, making, uh, sorry, my kids are getting a call there. Um, hold on. Oh, that, that Alexa. Yeah. It rings all throughout the house. There we go. Um, you know, uh, lowering, um, Lowering the level of abortion is going to start with education, with access to health care, uh, with family support. And if we really want to get serious about reducing abortion, we need to reduce unwanted pregnancies. And, um, and while there's plenty of disagree, while I disagree with my own party on abortion itself, there are steps that we can take that we can all agree on and how to reduce. And I think we can all agree that we want to reduce unwanted pregnancies and, and, uh, and we can start there. Ben, if we can, I'd like to shift gears just a little bit. Um, I know it's fun to talk about abortion, and you'd like to talk about that all night. But uh, if we could, I, I wonder if we could think a little bit about um, COVID and, and the stage of the game where we are. We find ourselves right now. Um, you know, I haven't seen any good data, but it's my sense that there is a slightly higher proportion of anti-vaxxers in the church than outside. I don't know if you'd agree with that. But as I think about our effort to control the pandemic, um, it seems to me that one of those things is to try and encourage more people to be vaccinated so that they, there are fewer people who can be infected and can therefore spread the disease so that it, it provides a, you know, we, we talk about it a lot, that it's become almost a cliche to use the term, but we're talking about herd immunity, uh, and that can be achieved through vaccinations. What's your take on all that? Yeah, well, first of all, I would say I, I've been grateful that the leaders of our church have been so clear about getting the vaccine and encouraging people to get the vaccine and, and to take actions that are responsible. And we know that, you know, um, we are responsible for our own actions, but we're responsible for our actions and how they affect others. And, um, you know, I had COVID. I was one of the early, early cases of COVID. Um, the, the first week of the shutdown, I was diagnosed and ended up spending eight days in the hospital struggling to breathe. It was a pretty scary time for our family. And, um, you know, all that while I was, you know, worried about my own health and whether I would recover, but also thinking about being so grateful that I had followed the guidance that uh, had been recommended that that I hadn't unwittingly or unnecessarily exposed others uh, to the virus, um, that uh, that you know, and that their health would, would be on my mind. And so, I think the same thing with the vaccine. Let's let's do our part. You know, the the symbol of uh, on the Utah flag is a beehive because we believe in industry, but also just this notion that that we thrive by coming together. And uh, you know, it, it's a it's an interesting metaphor for Utah that we've adopted because we know because of the rugged individualism that exists in the church and rugged individualism of the West that are really intertwined. But we also know in the West that we are 
absolutely dependent upon each other. That um, from our pioneer roots, that we would not have survived and seen this desert flourish and blossom like it has had we not come together and and um, and thrived by supporting each other. And I think we're we're faced with another moment right now where um, we each and every one of us need to take our own personal responsibility um, for our own health and for the health of others. And and um, it's important to to understand the facts are that this vaccine is safe, that uh, that um, what's not safe is not getting vaccinated. You know, we saw you saw with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine that of the thousands of people who have received the vaccine is that uh, three people have died. But I like to point out, think of the the thousands of people who haven't gotten the vaccine and how many of them are dying in much much higher numbers. And so let's let's just do our part. Let's uh, follow the data, follow the science and follow our religious leaders and, and take responsibility to, to get the vaccine for ourselves. I've been vaccinated. My wife's been vaccinated. As soon as our kids are eligible, they'll get vaccinated. And uh, it is safe and it's a responsible thing to do to protect others. I uh, I got the J&J vaccine and then it was like days later when all the uh, blood clot drama <laughs> started rolling out. Yeah. And I wasn't worried necessarily because back then it was what, 7 million J&J vaccines have been administered. It was yeah. six people, which is still, which is terrible. But I like what you say to have the perspective of it because how much worse would it be if we did not take these measures? And I think it's fascinating to me just to watch this from almost a, a sociological perspective, how members of the church, when the church is published things about about COVID and specifically about the vaccine, President Nelson calling the vaccine a miracle, something we should do and consider if our if our situation allows for it. And of course, it's still a personal decision. But we saw that when that first happened with the first presidency got vaccinated uh, earlier in the year, they had to shut down comments on the church's Facebook page because people were just going off the rails about it. And even recently, the church updated guidelines for missionaries once more to say, if you're, a, if you're an American missionary from the United States, and you were going to be serving abroad, you had to get the COVID vaccine before you could go. And it's fascinating to me just to watch the people of, of our faith, people where we pride ourselves on, on searching out truth and praying about things and understanding things, just flying off the handle about this, especially for something like for missionaries, because you've had to get vac- all kinds of vaccines if you're going abroad. I went abroad on my mission and I got all kinds of vaccinations and it, I didn't think much of it. And the COVID vaccine is now just one of many, and I think it's just so funny how much we as a people kind of like forget the uh, the basic things we've been doing for a long time. Anyway, I mean, I I didn't see anybody up in arms when I had to get a hepatitis vaccine to go to Spain. Like, wh- where were the people advocating for my life on that, on that one? Right? <laughs> but um, so I just think it's just um, it's just so weird to me to see how we can be that way as a people. We, we like, we were, you know, like you said, rugged individualism. We still like to latch on to something where we have like this fear of some kind of government conspiracy or something that exists and that COVID is all, you know, COVID's all one big ploy in order to control us. Or I don't even know what else. COVID is just a tragedy that has tested our social fabric quite a bit. And it's just a question of what we're going to do to get, uh, get through it. Sorry to soapbox there a little bit. You're, you're the guest congressman, not me. Um, no, that's absolutely right. I'm thinking, I, I did my mission in Brazil and you're right. I remember a whole battery of, of vaccines that I had to get and then carry my, my vaccine passport with me in, in country oh, wow. and hold on to that. And yeah. And then we're, so and we're seeing what's I, happening. I like, and that. Brazil has been like rocked by COVID pretty badly um, because mm-hmm. they haven't handled, there's a lot of factors there, of course, you know, poverty and things too, but uh, um, thanks for getting into that one, Devin. I think it's always fun to talk, talk, talk COVID. <laughs> uh, one thing I'm curious about is just what you're doing in the future. You know, you narrowly won election in 2018 and you did narrowly lose. Did you see, what do you think might've tilted the tide slightly against you in the last cycle? So you lost your seat compared to 2018. Is there any, is there any particular thing that you found that might have well, I think you- I mean, um, and we could debate this all night, right? Sure. But um, a few things. So my district, uh, it, start, it starts with how the boundaries are drawn in the district, right? So Utah typically will get um, a Democrat will get running statewide will get thirty five percent of the vote. So we have four congressional districts. So if you did really simple math, you would say if thirty five percent of the state of Utah is Democrat, you can probably get. One out of the, our four congressional seats should be Democratic. A fourth of them, right, would be 25%. But the, the boundaries have been drawn in a way that, um, that rather than one out of four being uh, a Democratic seat, you have 100% of them are 
35% Democrat. So it means essentially that none of them uh, are, it's a, it's difficult boundaries with the gerrymandering that's happened. So my district, to give you a few statistics, my district was, um, they'll rate how likely a, a district is to be won by a Democratic yeah. Republican. So my district was rated R plus 20 by the Cook Report, meaning a, a Republican should win my district by 20 percentage points. And I won it. Uh, in 2018. So man, that, by winning it, I overperformed the district by 20%, um, which is pretty difficult. And that, and that kind of explains Devin too. Devin was a great candidate, ran a great race, but I think your district is what, R plus 27? Yeah. So yeah. And yeah. I did worse than that, unlike you. But I, I will say as a first-time candidate uh, in an R plus 27 district, it's even harder to raise money than in an R20 as an incumbent. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so it, without money, it's hard to run a campaign. Yeah. So I had to get, um, so my district was 14% Democrat. So it meant in order to win election, I had to get, if I got 100% of the Democrats voting for me, I'd get 14%. Uh, then you had to get a bunch of independents and you had to get, I, in my case, about 25% of the Republicans. So to do that, you've got to get your message out there, and uh, and that's not easy. So we did, and my message resonated when I was campaigning in 2018, and we won by um, just it was a close race, uh, and we barely pulled out a win there in 2018. Uh, but again, it wasn't insignificant. It was a close race, but overperforming the baseline of the district by 20 percentage points was was pretty significant. It ended. It was the most Republican district in the country. It was represented by a Democrat. So you come back around in 2020, we knew it was going to be a close race just by the, the makeup of the district, how the boundaries had been drawn of the district. We knew it was going to be a close race. But in 2020, we saw the presidential year. So you saw intense interest in, uh, in the presidential race. More people are going to turn out. And in a district that's 14% Democrat, if you just turn up the volume of people who are going to show up, it means you're turning out a heck of a lot more Republicans and independents than you are Democrats. So it meant we were going to have to win over even more Republicans and more independents to hold on to that. And so we saw uh, voter turnout in my district in 2020 was the greatest increase in turnout in the country was my district. It was the highest voter turnout in Utah history. I think it was like 94% of eligible voters voted in 2020. So you know, in a district that's 14% Democrat and everybody turns out, um, you got to, you know, it's actually, we think it's still a miracle that we were able to hold it to within 1%. Yeah. Um, but it was a very close race. And so, you know, it's a few things. I think, you know, what turned people out? Trump certainly turned out those voters who had never voted before. One out of four people who voted in 2020 have never voted before. We've been in public service for 12 years. So people had gotten accustomed to seeing me on the ballot. They even though they were Republicans, they knew who I was and they had seen me working to build bridges and bring people together. So they were comfortable crossing the aisle and voting for me. But one out of four people who showed up to vote had never voted in their life. So they just hadn't had that experience of familiarity. And in that case, they're going to default to um, their party default, which is Republican. And so, you know, it was it was um, difficult um, to dig out of, I think, in, in that regard. And and we held it to with one, within 1%. One so still pretty happy with the numbers, although a loss is a loss. And I joke that, you know, the um, only a Utah Democrat can spin a loss into a win. But, um, but we, we still felt that it was a pretty, pretty good race um, in spite of the outcome. So we so what's next? Yeah, what's next? No, well, yeah. What's next? Well, you know, I I um I love public service, and I do believe that where like as I said at the beginning, where much is given, much is expected, and I think we live in one of the best states in the country, and one of the best countries in the in the, the best country in the world. And I I don't think public service is done for me. I want to continue to give back. I think um, we've got to. Are we going to fix what's broken in Washington? Are we going to and if we want to fix what's broken in Washington, we have to elect people who are going to fix it, not try to divide us and drive that wedge deeper and deeper for, for political gain. We've seen, we saw on January 6th where that road takes us, takes us to violence and, and insurrection. If people come to the point that they believe that they, they don't believe they can settle their differences through an election, they resort to other means to settle their differences. And so I think we're at a, really at a crossroads as a country. We're going to heal and bring people together and start settling our differences by listening 
and talking and debating and negotiating or by spreading misinformation and divisiveness and pointing fingers at one side or the other, both sides do the finger pointing and blaming. Um, what direction are we gonna go in as a country? I, I love this country and I, I love public service and I hope that we go in the direction of recognizing that there's good in both parties, just like there's bad in both parties. There are good people on both sides of the aisle. There are bad people on both sides of the aisle and that we should vote for those who are going to work to heal our country and bring us together and not put up with elected officials who simply cast blame and point fingers and, and divide. So I'm interested in public service. I'm interested in maybe serving again. I don't know if that means um, running for office in two years or 10 years. I think they're both options that I'm considering right now. Uh, in the meantime, I'm also discovering that not all public service requires running for office. I'm working at the University of Utah at Sorenson Impact that does a lot of work in public-private partnerships and working to address issues of public challenges uh, through private sector and, and public, pu private and public partnerships and private means. And uh, I started an organization called the Common Ground Institute that is working to be a, a forum, a, a, a place for people to come together and have these healing conversations and, and bridge building conversations on matters of public importance. And so, you know, I, I don't, I guess I don't know at this point. I'm, I'm actually looking at running again, even in two years. Um, it might be, it might be in 2022. It might be much later down the road, but also um, enjoying giving back in different ways. Well, one thing we do know is that um, Elder Ukdor's family, quote unquote, will probably be donating to you. I'm just kidding. <laughs> All that. Uh, so I have one last question for you. You've hinted this. You've mentioned, you know, where much is given a few times to scripture. The, maybe that's it. But is there a scripture that sort of encapsulates your your vision as a, as a politician, as a public servant? And maybe it is that one, which is fine. No, I think there are a lot. Um, there are a lot that um, that motivate me. I think one you know, one that maybe informs my philosophy of government is in Doctrine and Covenants, where we believe that governments were instituted um, by God for the benefit of man. Uh, I think that that you know the the belief that government is evil and needs to be destroyed. Now, I think that the best government is a small government, an efficient government, and the government isn't the answer to all of our problems. But there are things that government can do that nobody else can do. You know, law enforcement and, and public safety is, as a mayor um, was vital, a vital government function that, that I'm grateful for. Um, roads and bridges and transportation infrastructure or, you know, helping to deploy broadband or, uh, you know, I believe in the private sector and the, and the free market. But I believe that free market needs guardrails, and that we can we should have debates and figure out what those appropriate guardrails are that that protect us from the excesses of the private market while allowing free enterprise to thrive. And um, you know that's that's probably foundational to my governing philosophy as a centrist Democrat that um, that government was instituted of God for the benefit of man. Um, you know I think that. Uh, just general principles of, of loving thy neighbor and, and create and creating opportunities for people to lift themselves up. I, I am, do believe in rugged individualism. And at the end of the day, we're responsible for our own actions, but, um, but we can open doors for people. Not everybody has the same doors open to them in life. And somebody, so I was raised, um, single parent. My mother, uh, my parents divorced when I was a teenager. My mother was a school teacher. And, um, you know, I don't know that, um, college wasn't in my future, but thankfully for things like Pell Grants and, and subsidized student loans that I was able to receive through government grants, uh, I was able to go to college. Now, it wasn't a free ride. I worked three jobs, put myself through college and, and sac had personal sacrifice and hard work, but all of that personal sacrifice and hard work would not have amounted to an open door to pursue a college degree were it not for some some grants and loans, subsidized loans that I was able to take out to to lift myself up. And so I think that you know all of these are, are values I think of our of our faith that inform my public service and my desire to give back. Thank you for that. I think this has been great. Um, 
lot to lot to ponder, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this, dear dear twim listeners, to get different perspectives on the issues of the day. Um, and I think we're almost in a, in, in kind of a new world now after President Oak's talk in particular, you know, where he really drove the point home that we can have more pluralism as a church. And I know there's been more. There's been recent studies that have shown, you know, we saw uh, the numbers with which Latter-day Saints of certain demographics voted for Joe Biden, for example. We don't have to get into any of this at this time. I don't know if it's the Trump effect or if we really are seeing a place where our church is just going to get more pluralistic politically, which I think broadly speaking is just good for us overall, right? So that we have different ideas. And uh, as uh, Congressman McAdams was saying, you know, that we can come together and find common ground and do these things. Um, So... Ben McAdams, former congressman for Utah's 4th District to the Utah House of Representatives, thank you so much for joining us on This Week in Mormons. Thank you, Jeff. Pleasure. Thank you, Devin. Great to be with and, you both. And Devin. Thank you. Devin, thank you, my friend. Good to see you, buddy. It's always good to be with you, and it's especially fun to be here with uh, the Congress. Yeah, this was so, great. Thank you. I really appreciated being a part of this. It's a privilege for me. I thank all of you very much for taking the time to listen. Once again, hit that subscribe button, and uh, we'll talk to you again next week with more Latter-day Saint news and commentary and guests and... Uh, whatever we can come up with. So until then, be well, be holy, and be happy. Bye-bye.